I'm going to be reading this morning, as um, Marcus indicated, and you can see in your bulletin, uh, the scripture from Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. And I'll be reading part of the last chapter of the book. And as I listen, I invite each of you here, as I read, for each of you to listen for the word of the Lord. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sancrace, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, and work, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I suspect that at this point, at least some, if not many of you, are sitting there wondering, what in the world did the bishop send us this time? Um, you're sitting here in this congregation, or perhaps some people are streaming and connected online. You've just heard what seems to be an unusual text, to say the least. And I don't blame you a bit if you're sitting there wondering if I have lost my mind or if I ever had one, or you know, maybe the new preacher lady is just a little bit crazy. But I, I probably am. But I ask that you bear with me for a few minutes. 
Because there is method in my apparent madness. First of all, in the coming time that we have to spend together, however long that is, I think you'll find out that I firmly believe that all of Scripture has something to say to us. You know, and all of us have passages that we particularly like and are familiar, and and they make us feel good, and they're our go-to passages. And Then there are some passages that seem kind of strange, or maybe even deep down, we really wish they weren't there because we don't particularly like what they have to say. And then there are passages like this one that it's easy to just sort of slide right over. But they all have something to say. And what we have just heard here are the greetings of the Apostle Paul to people he has known And perhaps some of them are people that he has not yet encountered face to face, but has only heard of through the report of others. But these people are important to him, and he knows that they are important to God, and so he includes their names here. They are the believers in Rome, and Rome was the capital of that great empire. We read these names and we realize they're people that we know very little about. Now, a few of them maybe we've heard of along the way. He says something about Prisca, and in some places she's called Priscilla, and she has a husband, Aquila, and they briefly show up a couple of other places in Scripture. So, yeah, okay, that seems familiar. And then there's that guy named Rufus. And we're not sure about Rufus, but scholars have tried to collect, connect the dots, and it's very possible that Rufus was the son of Simon of Cyrene. And Simon was that stranger who was compelled to carry the cross of the exhausted Jesus on his way to Golgotha. And so if Rufus is the son of um, Simon of Cyrene, well, that's a really interesting thing to think about and to mull over. But everybody else on this list, it's a, it's a case of who knows. You know, it's a bunch of names that were common enough for that time and place in the world's history. But they're not names that stand out for any particular note notice. And actually, many of the names here are ones that were particularly common among slaves or freed people. And freed people were just that, people who had once been slaves, but had in some way managed to earn their way out of slavery and get their freedom. But if these were mostly slaves and freed people, These are just the average people, people with no particular status in their society. They definitely would not have been thought of as the elites. Boy, we hear that word a lot today, don't we? But these are not the elites of the Roman Empire, the Roman world. We read this list of names and we realize that no one wrote their biographies, Nobody left an account of where they were born or when and how they died or where they got buried. They're the unknown people, 
the common people and the very ordinary people of their day. Like many of us, they were unremarkable in the big scheme of things. These are not people who had their Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. And yet, there is something very remarkable here. Because not only has this accounting of their names lasted for more than 2,000 years and is a part of Holy Scripture. Imagine that. Their names are part of Holy Scripture. But when we look at this passage closely, we see that each of these individuals are very special to the Apostle Paul. They're very special to God. And Paul doesn't speak about them in generalities here. It isn't just a case of, well, God bless all of y'all. It's not that. Several of them are referred to as beloved by him. A few of them he calls my kinsman or my relative. And I think it's fascinating when we stop to read the little tidbits about them. There's Mary, and now this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This would have been some other Mary. But she is commended for working hard. And it makes you wonder just what was it that she did? Apelles was approved in Christ. And I think about that and I think, wow, wouldn't you like to have that said about you? That that's your significant feature? And then we have Trifina and Trifosa. And I think, boy, that's a pair of names, isn't it? And he describes them as workers. But the interesting thing, you know, back in that day, you know, names had particular meanings and this and that. And, and the people that were listening to this letter read way back when would have known that those names Trifina and Trifosa meant dainty and delicate. So apparently these are not the people that you would necessarily count on to be workers. On the contrary, they sound like the type who might you know, need some extra care in looking after. But here they are. They're women who obviously got out of their own comfort zone and became workers for the kingdom of God. You know, and when I think about them, dainty and delicate, you know, in, in my mind's eye, I see these two diminutive little ladies, you know, who are just very soft-spoken and very gently raised. And they have become powerhouses. Workers for the Lord. And then he talks about the mother of Rufus. And Paul lovingly says, she acted like a mother to me too. And I think, where did that come from? What did she do? You know, did she welcome him into her home? Maybe she prepared meals that would best be described as comfort food, cared for him when he wasn't feeling well, gave motherly wise counsel, did his laundry. 
I don't know, but she was a mother to him. You know, we only conjecture about her and about everybody else, and, and I know that much of what we connect, conjecture probably isn't correct. But they were real people with real lives. And yes, they were unknown and common and ordinary, and they were certainly not the movers and shakers in that great world-known city of Rome. Far from it. More than likely, they were people with rather meager economic resources and dubious education. They were people who would have been largely discounted by those who really mattered in the hierarchy of Rome. People that most people would have considered unimportant, maybe even thought of as a bunch of nobodies. But in the middle of their very ordinariness, God was doing something extraordinary. And what God was doing was he was using them to build his church and to become a collective of people of faith. And boy, that, there in Rome, that was a very shocking faith in a man who had died at the hands of the Romans and who had been executed on one of their crosses. And it didn't get much lower than that in the Roman world. And so to be worshiping this crucified Jesus was just amazing. But these oh-so-ordinary people were living extraordinary lives because they were living lives that were centered on Jesus. They weren't centered on the power of the Roman Empire or of Caesar. And that was really extraordinary in that place and time when everybody thought, I better bow to Caesar. This little group of people were the beginning of the church in Rome, the beginning of the church that would ultimately shake the empire and continue long after that empire was gone. The Roman Empire has been gone for hundreds of years now. There's ruins in Rome. But God's church continues and continues victoriously. Right in the middle of that very decadent Roman culture, these little nobodies were living lives that at the very best invited disdain. Lives that would have appeared foolish to the elite and as things progressed in their world, lives that often ended up enduring persecution. But the amazing and the wonderful thing is that the extraordinary power of God worked in and through their very ordinariness. And yes, the mighty empire of Rome is long gone, and yes, God's people have had their ups and downs in the centuries that have intervened. But God's people have never been totally overcome, and they never will be totally overcome. And when we stop to think about that, 
Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? A few years back, I had the privilege of visiting Rome. And as I went from place to place, I was struck how similar our decadent Western culture of today is to the one that the early Christians lived in. You know, things change. And if you read the polls, you know, we, we read about how, you know, fewer and fewer profess a faith in Christ and, you know, that more and more people are declaring themselves to be nuns, and that's not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. And that's people that have no particular religious affiliation and maybe no particular spiritual interest, it seems. Rome was a very decadent culture. But God worked in a mighty way. And over time, that culture was changed. And he worked through these people whose names we just heard. He worked through others like us. And, and so the world that we find ourselves in, and we wonder sometimes, you know, what can we do? And does anybody really care anymore? And, and look at us. We're just a bunch of ordinary people in a mid-sized town in the middle of America. Flyover country. And a hundred years from now, if somebody goes down to the courthouse and pulls an old record book off of a dusty shelf or, or maybe finds some ancient digital file that's out there floating and languishing in the cloud and, and comes across our names and reads them, they're probably going to quickly shut the book or close down the file. They'll read our names and... Well, think, who are these people? Now, for a few of us, there may be some bit of fame, but I suspect most of us here this morning are the ordinary ones whose names won't mean a whole lot to future generations. And the events of our lives are pretty ordinary, too. You know, we get up and in the morning and we shower and we brush our teeth and we gulp down some coffee and we get on with the tasks of the day. You know, maybe stop by the grocery store, pick up the kids and take them wherever it needs they need wherever it is that they need to go and you know, get home and fix supper and you know, crash on the couch with the remote in our hand. An ordinary day. And whatever it is that we might be doing for a living, well, it just keeps on, doesn't it? You know, for the lawyer, it's another legal brief. For the farmer, it's another field to harvest. For the teacher, it's another classroom to manage or a pile of papers to grade. And for the pastor, it's another sermon and maybe another committee meeting. You get the idea. It just goes on and on. 
You know, I have a, a quote that has been a favorite of mine for years, and um, when I was running the printing business, it hang rather, hung rather prominently in my office, and it's been attributed to the Russian writer Anton Chekhov, and then other places say, no, he didn't really say it, so who knows? I like the quote, though. And the quote goes like this. It says, any idiot can face a crisis. It's this day-to-day -day living that wears us out. And when I came across that, it resonated with me, and you know, it, it made me chuckle, and it still makes me chuckle. But I kept that hanging in my office, and I think the real reason that it hung there was because it was a challenge to me not to get stuck in what often seems to be the mundaneness of my life and not to let myself be worn out by the day-to-day -day living that is really an inevitable part of what it means to be human. Because if I'm not careful, I can forget, and I can forget that God is at work not only in my life, but also in work all around me. And I can forget that I can encounter him in the ordinariness of people who I bump up against in the course of just an average day. You know, it might be the clerk at the local food market or the receptionist at the doctor's office or the wait person who brings my lunch or, or yes, even the panhandlers who used to stop me and speak to me when I'd be uh, hurrying down the sidewalk in Louisville. It's easy to forget that God wants to work in and through ordinary people just like me and just like you, and that through us, he's going to do something ordinary for his kingdom in the world. And, you know, it may not be real noticeable at the moment, but what we do may have farther-reaching effects than any of us may realize. Those ordinary Christians in Rome didn't know that God was working through them to achieve his purpose in the world and to ultimately bring down the Roman Empire. And we don't know what God's doing through us either. And I realize I too often forget to look for God and for the opportunities that he gives me to be his hands and his feet. And, and I forget that Jesus said that what we do for even the least person is doing it for him. And, and, and it's easy to forget that I am to bring the presence of Christ to all of my very ordinary encounters and that his light needs to shine through me. And that I don't need to worry about the outcome because that belongs to him. It's so easy and it's so natural really for us to be like the prophet Elijah. And, and we look for God in the earthquake and the wind and the fire. And we forget that more often than not we find him in the still small voice. We find him in the person who doesn't seem to be worth paying much attention to, or the encounter that we're tempted to brush on past, the event that doesn't have any meaning on the surface, may even appear to be just a delay or an irritation to us. We forget that the ordinary us you and me can also be the still, small voice of God's love in the life of another.
And I suspect that we have a tendency to discount the ordinary because it's so ordinary. And we often discount our own ability to do anything remarkable for the sake of God's kingdom because we ourselves are so ordinary. And it's tempting to suppose that great things for God are done by some special breed of super-Christians, not common mortals like you and I are. But that is so not the case. Scripture tells us that God most often uses the common, the foolish, the people who have little standings, the ones who are often overlooked, Actually, people like Jesus and his disciples and the early Christians whose names we heard a few minutes ago. And God uses even events that on the surface look like disasters. The cross being the most extreme example of that, that was a disaster, it seemed. But God uses disasters because what matters is the extraordinary power of God working in the ordinariness of our lives. Ordinary people and ordinary lives are ripe with the possibility to be where God's love and God's grace are lived out to the fullest. So I wrap up here, I'm going to tell you a short story. There's a little village in France, and I did not take French, and so I'm sorry for any French speakers out there. I'm probably going to not say this right. Um, the little village was something on the order of Le Chambon. And during the days of the Second World War, it was very small. There was maybe 700 people in the village and another 200 or so that were in the farms that surrounded the village. But most of the people of that village were Christians. They were descendants of the French Protestants of the Reformation era, era that we call the Huguenots. And as Christians, these villagers could not go along with what the Nazis were doing, and their area was occupied by the Nazis. But under the Nazis' nose, they made their village a place of refuge. And because of their willingness to risk their own security, because of their efforts, about 10,000 Jewish people were saved from the clutches of the Holocaust. This little village of a few hundred people. Some years later, the son of one of those people went back and interviewed them and did a documentary, which I have seen, and it's fascinating. It's hard to find, unfortunately. But I remember watching it, and he would ask these simple farm folk about what they had done and why they had done it. And I remember, you know, an elderly couple standing there, you know, and they're overalls, work clothes, just kind of shrugging. They didn't think they had done anything remarkable. They just did what they could do at that moment in history.
They were such ordinary people. They had lives that most of their lives would have been considered simple and mundane. And theirs is a story that very few have bothered to read. But what those people did was extraordinary. And they did it because of the love of Christ and the extraordinary power of God that was just deeply rooted in who they were. Well, my friends, God is still looking for ordinary people who will decide to live for Jesus and are willing to use all that they are and all that they have to advance his purposes. You know, and I don't know what God has ahead for us, but I pray that as we live into this new year and this season, that our God will do extraordinary things through this congregation just like he did with those folks in Rome. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we are a group of believers in a small town in middle America. And yet, Lord, your power is as real here as it was in Rome. And so we pray that you would come, Christian triune God who lives. Here we are. Shake the world again. Amen.